You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, hello, and welcome along to another edition of Out of Boy Clarence. How splendid of you to jump into another trip through classic movie land with me. My apologies if you can hear birds singing, by the way. They're very vocal this morning. Must just quickly swing your gaze around to a new podcast I discovered this week. My good friend Danny has only gone and gotten into the podcasting game with a new show entitled Kinotomic. Great name. Just listen to the first episode and it's great stuff. Nice to see another classic movie show out there. And I can assure you that no one knows their stuff quite like Danny does. She knows everything about old movies. Plus, she's great fun to hang out with. She's been to two of our meetups and she's awesome. So welcome along, Danny, to the world of podcasting. Glad to have you. If you want to give her show a whirl, search for Kinotomic. That's K-I-N-O-T-O-M-I-C. Similarly, I have to direct your attention to what's destined to become one of the great podcast series about music. The peerless Mr. Tom Austin Morgan has spent three years writing and devising a new music biography series, and this is the week it's launching. So there's no excuse not to head straight over to your podcatchers immediately and subscribe to it. It's called Band Biographies. That's Band, B-A-N-N-E-D. Tom was kind enough to send the first episode over to me for preview, and it's basically the entire story of the Sex Pistols in 90 minutes. I'm telling you now, even if you aren't a fan of punk, this is an incredibly well-told story of rebellion, sex, drugs, and rock and roll through the tale of one of the most formative bands of the generation. Tom, you have done such a superlative job with this, sir. I'm deeply, deeply impressed. And despite the three years it took you, you should be very proud. Speaking as someone who spends years telling stories, welcome along, brother. Pain is real. I can honestly say that this will likely end up being one of the most valuable documents on the Sex Pistols in years to come. If you want to grab it when it comes out later this week, then make sure you're subscribed to Banned Biographies in your podcast apps right now. B-A-N-N-E-D, Biographies. And talking of music that rocked the foundations of the world, let's skip on over to Jimmy Dorsey now with Tangerine. Truly the punk music of its day. Tangerine, she is all they claim. With her eyes of night and lips as bright as flame. Tangerine, when she dances by. Senorita stare and cavaliere sigh And I've seen toasts to tangerine Raised in every bar across the Argentine Yes, she has them all on the run 
heart belongs to just one Her heart belongs to the 1940s Johnny Rotten himself, Jimmy Dorsey, with Tangerine. Feel that anger. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. Yes, a swim in the question pot today. And what is this floating past me as I do the breaststroke? Why, it's a question from the magical Miss Tree Kimber, who writes, Hello, Adam. I hope you, Suki, and the rest of the family are all well. I'm still new to the world of amazing old movies. Every time someone mentions a movie, I add it to my list of movies to watch. Unfortunately, I'm struggling with finding the movies to watch. Are there any good websites I can find old movies? And have you got any must-watch movies I should add to my list? Many thanks, Tree. Yeah, it's getting harder to find classic movies on tube sites these days. I have to say, though, you can't really fail with OK.ru, which is a Russian tube site that is, at time of writing, still pretty unregulated. Now, obviously, I can't condone copyright infringement and wouldn't dream of doing so. But if you want to see a movie and you can't find it anywhere else, then type into Google the name of the movie you want, followed by the letters OKRU. And nine times out of ten, that movie will come up in the video results. You just click on it and off you go. As for must-watch movies tree, go watch Roman Holiday, Rebecca, Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dreamhouse, Footlight Parade, The Roaring Twenties, Random Harvest, and The Devil and Daniel Webster. Then if you need any more, come back here. Thanks, Tree. Have a Canterbury. Canterbury. On to another question from Martin Leaf, who writes, Hello, Adam. Thought I'd start by saying how happy I am finding this podcast. It's brilliant listening to someone else's reviews and discussions on old movies. Oh, thank you, Martin. I am a pencil portrait artist, and listening to your podcast while working really is very satisfying while filling my knowledge of films I've seen and films I can look up to view which I've not seen. My question subject is quite fitting. Isolation. 
Adam, which are your favorite, if any, movies which are kept in the same room? Isolated direction in filmmaking. Thanks for reading my question and all the very best to you, your family and all the podcast listeners. Happy isolation movie binging, Martin. Thank you, Martin. And just for the sake of admin, I did condense Martin's email down slightly, but the rest was very nice of you, sir, and I thank you for it. As for an isolation movie, hands down, the best one ever and a film I've constantly preached about is 1949's Obsession, starring Sally Gray and Robert Newton. Unbelievably good, and still a film I revisit often. I won't run through the plot yet again, but if you want to hear my review of it, you can go back to episode 14 of this show. One of the best films ever made, and isolation plays a huge part in it. Have a Sally Gray, Martin. Sally Gray. And remember that if you have a question, go to www.attaboyclarence.com, scroll down the homepage, and chuck the blighter into the question pot. I thank you. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinking cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. Time for a brain teaser then, and this week's is true brilliance. You're playing along with the panel then, folks, so strain those ears a little closer to the sound of the voice and see if you can tell. Who the hell is that Hollywood legend? All right, panel, as you know, in the case of our mystery challenger, we go to a different form of questioning. You ask one question at a time in turn, moving clockwise, and we'll begin it all with Arlene Francis. Ah, you in one of the performing arts? Oui, je suis un artiste. You call that an answer? Sure. (laughs) Sir, that was Uh, in the affirmative, by the way. Yes. uh, May I gather from that uh, piping that you are not a singer? Je ne suis pas un chanteur. <laughs> Another affirmative answer, Miss Kilgallen. Are you then what might be described as a legitimate actor? Hmm. <laughs> oui. Mr. Oui? Pid- yes, that's right, yeah, Mr. Please. Pigeon. Uh, are you performing on the uh, New York stage right at the present time. I have often walked down that street before, <laughs> but not now. One dollar, nine to go, Miss Francis. What does that mean? He's not He's performing not now. now. But he has. He used to walk down that street. Uh, then are you in the cinema? Quelque temps. Sometimes, I figure that means. Oui. Yeah. Mr. Serp? Uh, does television see you with any degree of regularity? Oh, wee! Miss <laughs> 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 Gilgallan? Have you two children? Non, je n'ai pas un enfant, c'est une picasse garçon. I beg your pardon. C'est oh, une yeah, <laughs> Two down and eight to go, Mr. Pigeon. I have you a picture that has just opened recently in New York. Oui, je pense. I think so. Miss Francis? Would one consider you a serious actor as opposed to a comedian? (laughs) 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 I would say that 
We would consider our guest so talented that he would play either serious parts or comedy parts with equal skill. Thank you very much. That's perfect, all right. <laughs> Mr. Sir. You sound like the kind of fellow who would tie the heroine to a railroad track and leave her there. Uh, have you ever played a villain? Oh. Me? Miss Kilgallen? Are you Yule Brenner? Yule Brenner? Did you say Dorothy? No. That makes it three down and seven to go, Mr. Pigeon. Are you Kirk what Douglas? You? Kirk Douglas. Four down and six to go, Miss Francis. Oh, no. Uh, would you be considered um, older than Rock Hudson? <laughs> Even everybody. <laughs> I, yes. I just meant you're not considered one of the Bobby Soxer group. No, no. everybody is older than Rock Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Zerf. I, can I ask you a serious question this time? Do you think you know more about art than Eddie Robinson? Vise d'arte, vise d'amore. You do. Well, I know it's my turn, but I hesitate to say because I've been so wrong all night. Have you got it yet? Fairly sure you must have guessed who it is, but save your answer for later when all will be revealed. <laughs> This camel is tough on the spine. Hit me with a band-aid, Dad. Where they're going, why we're going, how can we be sure? I'll lay you eight to five that we'll meet Dorothy Lamore. Yeah, and get in line. Off on the road to Morocco. Hang on till the end of the line Like your jockeys Quiet, I hear this country's Where they do the dance of the seven veils We tell you more but We uh, would have the censor on our tails Good boy We, we certainly do get around Like Webster's Dictionary We're Morocco bound We're off on the road to Morocco. Well, look out. Well, clear the way. Stand here by for a concussion. <laughs> the many fires sleep on nails and saw their wives in half. It seems to me there should be easier ways to get a laugh. Shall I slip my big shoes on? Off on the road to Morocco. Hooray! Well, blow a horn! Everybody duck! Yes, yeah, the green light! Come on, boys! We may run into villains, but we're not afraid to roam. Because we read the story and we end up safe at home. Yeah! Certainly do get around. Like Webster's Dictionary, we're Morocco bound. Like a complete set of Shakespeare that you get in the corner drugstore for a dollar ninety-eight. We're Morocco bound, or like a volume of Omar Khayyam that you buy at a department store at Christmas time for your cousin Julia. We're Morocco bound. We can be arrested. 
And that was The Road to Morocco from Bing and Bob. Truly the Sid and Nancy of their day, and I think that song proves it. Well, I love a good horror movie, but you know what I love more? I love a bad horror movie, and my heavens to Betsy have I seen a lot of those. Now, there are a few that I won't hear a word against, because they simply revel in their awfulness, and I come bearing three such examples in today's show. Horror movies so terrible that they become almost endearing. Now, even out of these three bad boys, I have my favourites, so we'll work our way up to the main event. At number three, a sort of horror mystery comedy thing that is so indecisive about what it wants to be that it couldn't even decide on a single title for itself. In the UK, it was released as Lend Me Your Ear for some reason, and in the US, it was released as both A Walking Nightmare and The Living Ghost. Right, I mean, I don't quite know where to start with this thing, so let's just go in at the beginning. I appreciate how anxious you boys are for an interview, but Mrs. Craig is under a very severe strain. Who are you? I'm Anthony Weldon, a friend of the family. Well, how about giving us the dope on the case, huh? Yeah, any idea what happened to him? Was he a ransom note? No, no note. The story here is of the Craig family, headed by patriarch Walter Craig, who's gone missing. The family want him found, so they hire eccentric investigator Nick Train, played by James Dunn. Nope, me neither. Nick begins his investigation, but then suddenly Walter Craig turns back up at home. Only now, he's a zombie sort of creature who can't do anything except wander around the house carrying knives and not answering questions. Mr. Craig. Oh, Nick. Gee, that was close. Oh, Nick, I tried to warn you, but I lost my voice. Well, next time, put it someplace where you can find it, quick. This is one of the longest films I've ever seen, despite it actually only running for 58 minutes. It's not helped by a staggeringly awful beginning scene in which Train is hired for the job. It basically consists of two characters going to his office and asking him to start an investigation. So a really important scene then, because no way could you have just phoned him up. No, you had to spend a quarter of the film recruiting him. That's how you know you have no story. To make matters even more delightful, when they get to his office, they find it's full of oddball characters. Watch out, folks. Here comes some comedy. Hello, brother. Hi, sister. We can send a final course to tone all time to across from the east and find a four. I'm a from Tepper and High. I beg your pardon. Here he goes. We need to find a token sign of fellow sitting inside the fourth floor and catch up on the evening sign of court. I'm a head on the high and cross walk in a sign of fine. Don't you think? I'm sure I don't know. Don't know? Well, suppose we go inside and find out. (laughs) 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 Isn't it funny when annoying little men say things that don't make sense? Yes, of the 58 minutes that this film runs for, five of them are spent on this bullshit. But it's merely an entree to the main course because we're just about to meet Nick Train himself, described by those who know him as eccentric. This'll be a treat. Oh, this. <laughs> Just a little professional touch. Makes me look like a swami. <laughs> Very impressive, don't you think? You can tell he's eccentric, by the way, because he wears a fez during office hours. <laughs> Crazy guy. Standard sort of 20 minutes follows. Nick Train goes to the house, suspects everyone, asks some questions, causes ridiculously attractive, plucky Gal Friday character to fall inexplicably in love with him. And then old Walter Craig turns back up, but he's a zombie. Good job they called the doctor, or they'd never get this genius diagnosis. I'm sorry to say that Mr. Craig has suffered a severe brain injury. Brain injury? Yes. Mr. Craig may not regain possession of his mental faculties, 
Well, perhaps a year or two. It isn't amnesia, is it? No, no, no. In Mr. Craig's case, the cells of the cortex of the brain are paralyzed. Well, how could that happen? <laughs> I'm a doctor, young man, not a clairvoyant. It's amazing what you can tell by shining a light into someone's eyes, isn't it? It's followed by more doctor wizardry later, when Nick goes to visit the doctor again to get a really good explanation of all these shenanigans. Look out, everyone. Dr. Science O'Flanagan shall explain. In some way, Mr. Craig has been what we doctors call decorticated, which means that a portion of the brain has been temporarily paralyzed. There's some deaths. There's a bit of lights being flicked on and off. There's a secret passage hidden behind a bookcase that keeps on opening up and then closing just as someone's about to reveal something about something. And then there's some quite truly magical dialogue. You could just imagine the scriptwriter sitting down behind his typewriter and getting very excited about his work. And who can blame him with lyrical magic like this? Why, well, I went back to my cottage and stayed there until Cedric told me what had happened and then I hurried here. Anybody in your cottage with you? Just Blitz. We'll question that Blitz guy next. Finnegan, go get Mr. Blitz. Blitz is Mr. Weldon's dog. Why don't someone tell me these things? I'll, uh, I'll see you in my dreams. If I see you in mine, it'll be a nightmare. Oh, uh, hey, you, Cedric, how much do you charge to haunt a house? I don't know, sir. How much do you usually charge? Burn. But put aside the thundering crap-osity of the movie itself and reserve all your acid for Nick Train, one of the most annoying human beings ever born. But I tracked down the murderers, two of them. No! Yeah, I trailed them to the hideout, but they discovered me. There was no escape. I didn't have a gun. They started to shoot at me. Well, how did you get away? I didn't. I was killed. Oh, Joe! Ugh, someone kill him. Yes, he's quite the joker, all right. Take, for example, the horrifying moment in which he pretends a girl is about to die so that she'll tell him she loves him. Oh, hello. Why, I gotta catch me. There's no sense getting mad. Besides, uh, I had to find out if you love me, didn't I? I may never get a chance like that again. If I could love any man like you. <laughs> and just when you think you couldn't want to punch him anymore, the final curtain falls with him administering a spanking to a grown woman because she answered him back. He's a peach. It has everything. Murder? Check. Horror? Check. A sinister butler? Check. Big yet strangely uninteresting and cheap-looking house? Check. Scene two-thirds of the way through, where the sleuths meander around impossibly dark rooms for 20 minutes on the trot, almost causing you to fall asleep? Check. Comedy? No. What I do like about it is that it at least does its best to provide a decent solution to the mystery. Somebody obviously put about 10 minutes of work into this script, and it shows. The explanation at the end just about tips this one over into endearing. Go forth and find the living ghost. It'll either make you very angry or very happy. What an adventure you have ahead of you. Slightly more acceptable is 1943's The Mysterious Doctor, and your mouth will froth when I tell you that this stars John Loder. And guess what? He does some acting in it. I'm afraid we'll have to ask our friend Dr. Holmes to come down here for a moment. Aye, Dr. Holmes, a fine Dr. Eby. As incredible as it seems, John the Brighton Strangler Loder actually does some face acting in this. I swear, at one point, his eyes look from side to side instead of fixing dead ahead as though he's just remembered he's left the gas on. The co-producers and I watched The Brighton Strangler on Sunday just gone as a sort of pop-up movie night, and I think the main discovery of the evening for many was that John Loder's some kind of miracle man. Seriously, how can someone be so unemotive? You could bang a crisp bag next to his head and his expression would just stay there. Dead eyes of a shark, mouth slightly open, 
It's like he got kicked in the ghoulies several years before and the pain is still haunting him. So what a shock then to find him starring in 1943's The Mysterious Doctor and indulging himself in a bit of the old face acting. Honestly, I swear that once he even raises an eyebrow. So your friend's abroad again, eh, Hugh? Oh, he ain't no friend of mine. I'd like to cut his throat from here to here. Come now, Hugh, you shouldn't speak like that. You'll be giving the doctor quite the wrong impression of us peaceful folk at Morgan's Head. The story here begins with a mysterious doctor named Dr. Holmes rocking up to a pub in the tiny English village of Morgan's Head. The landlord there is wearing one of those old executioner's hoods to cover his hideously deformed face. I mean, were there no other fashion options for this guy? It's especially jarring as he pairs it with a three-piece suit. Seriously, if a man opens the door of a creepy old inn and he's wearing an executioner's hood, why would you stay there? Why? Why? Never was there such a battle. Six hours it lasted. Back and forth they went to Alan Orker. With his strong arms, gets hold of a boulder and heaves it just as though it was a feather. Smash! It hits Morgan right in the face. Well, that should have settled it. Oh, it killed Morgan, all right. But Alan Orker had got blood in his eyes and he was out with his big knife. And before anybody could stop him, he acts off Morgan's head and sticks it on a post outside the mine. There's been a curse on this place ever since for Black Morgan that very night when looking for his head. He went through the mine always looking always looking for the head what was that dog that's how the town got its name and that's why everyone's afraid to go near the mine anyway after some hokey ye olde pub english story nonsense from arthur mcstereotype there we're into the plot you see morgan's head has a very valuable tin mine but no one wants to go down into the tin mine because there's a headless ghost in there who keeps chasing people away and sometimes he kills them too it's a bit of a pain in the ass because the British army really need that tin for their army, but there's a ghost in there, so they can't have it. you think that they'd do something sensible like, I don't know, send in some soldiers to get the tin? Well, you know what? Send in more than one person at a time. But no, the local investigations basically consist of sending one superstitious villager off across the moors to where the mine is and never hearing from him again. This continues in splendid fashion until the mysterious doctor decides to investigate for himself. I wouldn't dream of leaving Morgan's head without at least having a look at the famous mine Mr. Penryn was telling me about. What? You really mean to say you're going down the Wickham mine? Going hunting our local ghost? Perhaps. So a Warner horror film this time. They didn't do many horror movies, but I really liked it when they did. Look at Dr. X or The Mystery of the Wax Museum, and who could forget Humphrey Bogart as a vampire in The Return of Dr. X? They were, on the whole, terrible at making horror movies, but I love seeing how they tried. The Mysterious Doctor is, let's be honest, quite a terrible movie. But you have to admire its can-do attitude. Surprisingly, too, John Loder isn't the worst actor in it. That particular honour goes to Bruce Lester, who wins the heart of the gorgeous Eleanor Parker, despite acting like a complete douche for the whole movie. His many crimes against reason include constantly telling her that she's stupid, bossing around the villagers that he considers quite inferior, persecuting the mentally ill, and wearing clothes that are quite clearly several sizes too big for him. To then have the entire film headed up by Mr. Emotion himself, John Loder, is quite the treat. Poor old John Loder, he had a pretty rough time bit in Hollywood, didn't he? It's almost as though every studio head in Hollywood resented him for being married to Hedy Lamarr, so they just stuck him in the worst Old World tribe you've ever seen. In this, he not only has to look sideways a lot, like Eagle Eye's action man, but also have a fist fight with an old man and lose, and also come to a grisly end by walking into a knife sticking out 
of a wall. In case you've forgotten, he dies in the Brighton Strangler by walking off a roof. Just give John one decent death, for heaven's sake. Poor old John, he really tried in this too. I swear at one point he even closed his eyes when he was in pain. I can't say that I detest 1943's The Mysterious Doctor entirely as I love the hokey Hollywood version of England, complete with mist on the ground and flagons of ale by the roaring fire while the pub goers tell ghost stories type of nonsense. But let's be clear, you'll need some very strong coffee in order to make it to the end. On to the crown jewel of bad movies then, 1943's The Ape Man, starring Bela Lugosi, and that's it. There's more to enjoy further down the credit list. The wonderfully named Glenn Glenn is in charge of sound. Barney Sarecki on writing duties. He's also associate producer. Fairly sure old Barney Sarecki is in this film too. More on that later. The plot here surrounds the mysterious disappearance of Bela Lugosi, a scientist who specializes in glands and who's vanished off the face of the earth. This is bad, bad news, according to Baylor's friend or lawyer or assistant or something. You see, Baylor, whose name is Jim Brewster in this, has made an incredible discovery. Six months ago, we made an astounding discovery. It was so far in advance of anything that's been done to date that Jim decided to be the guinea pig for this experiment himself. It isn't long before we find out what's happened to Dr. Jim Brewster, though, yes, because the assistant friend person shows Jim's sister, Agatha, down into the cellar of the big sinister house in the story, and after passing through a series of concealed doors, reveals the truth. Jim's only gone and turned himself into an ape man. I say that he's turned himself into an ape man. It's more like he's turned himself into Teen Wolf. You know, he sort of has that sideburns and beard thing going on. And hairy hands. And for some reason, just to further cement the problem, he's sleeping in a cage with an actual ape. Now I say actual ape. It's a man in a very terrible plastic ape costume. Yes, Baylor looks like Teen Wolf, and yet he still makes a more convincing looking ape than the supposedly actual ape in the cage with him. You have no idea what I've gone in the last few months. So he has to find a cure for his apeness, which means Baylor sitting in his lab with his hairstyle and his hair hands doing science. It's a great lab. It has everything. It has test tubes with smoking liquid inside. It has test tubes without smoking liquid inside. It has jars, shelves. It has those glass cake dome things you get at tea parties, but instead of cakes inside them, it has nothing. And I think Baylor is wearing a Bee Gees style chess medallion throughout this film too. Either that, or he's the mayor. Like, I don't get it. The experiment has turned him from Baylor Lugosi into Baylor Lugosi with a beard. That's the experiment that's gone horribly wrong. I mean, if you have a beard yourself, which is highly likely due to quarantine, if you like having a beard, you're going to be extremely offended by Baylor's depression at suddenly finding himself with a beard. Don't watch 1943's The Ape Man if you're a beard lover, because this is basically a film about a man who goes mental because he's given himself a science beard and he doesn't want it anymore. Yes, Baylor has been looking for some incredible breakthrough that will turn his appearance back to normal, never considering for a moment that the breakthrough he's been looking for is called a razor. 
there's a great scene in this in which Baylor gets mad and smashes up his lab very politely one bottle at a time. And the producers are so unimaginative that they use the same sound effect over and over again. It's a very specific disease as well. Literally the only thing that will turn him into not an ape is to have human spinal fluids injected into him. He doesn't even specify where, just inject it into his bum or something, that'll do. I seem to remember the man at the beginning saying that the experiment had been too successful, although as the story's going on, you do wonder what a failure would have looked like. So anyway, Jim needs a load of spinal fluid in order to get rid of his beard, so I kid you not, he puts on a hat and coat, releases his real ape, and off they go into the night to kill some folks and take their spinal fluids. You heard me, a hat and a coat. It's like watching a hipster Hagrid on a killing spree. Why did you take such a cat? I had to, George. I had to. I'm desperate. Do you realize what you're asking me to do? Murder. Oh, call it what you like. It's my life against somebody else. And I don't want to live the rest of my life this way. And I won't. If you ever thought that Bailey Lugosi couldn't act, then you'll still think that after his remarkable performance during a scene where he's accidentally photographed and reacts to the flashbulb by pulling a face that I can only describe as, ouch, that's my nipple you're twisting. He sort of pokes out his tongue and screws up his eyes and generally looks like he's just tasted my dad's cooking. Anyway, back at the house, Baylor's sister, Agatha, is suddenly for some reason being interviewed by newspaper reporters about her love of ghosts. Yeah, I'm not sure the statistics really back you up on that one, Agatha. Who am I to question Agatha's ghost knowledge? After all, this is a woman who for some reason has now that's what I call Ghost Noises 46 on vinyl. No kidding. She puts it on for the entertainment of her guests. They're of course delighted by that. On we go, anyway, with Baylor murdering half the city and topping up his beaker with spinal fluids until he's finally got enough. Nice and sanitary there, Baylor. The greatest moment comes when Baylor gets given the spinal fluid cure. The film has been building to this moment, and the producers spare all expense in showing him transform from ape to man again. Yes, to the crescendo of music. Baylor stands up straight. That's your lot. But of course, there's a twist coming. Now that Baylor's more man than ape, how will his ape co-killer take it? I think we all know the answer to that. Incredibly, the sight of Baylor looking like Abraham Lincoln in Planet of the Apes isn't the weirdest thing about the film. The weirdest thing is the strange supporting character who turns up every five minutes and gurns into the camera or inexplicably uses some kind of second sight to save a girl on the street from being murdered by the ape. He's not a main player in the story either. He just seems to follow the action around. He's at the dock at the beginning acting all kooky and then he peeks through the window of the lab when Baylor's pouring bottles of liquid into each other. His downright most bizarre appearance though comes at the end of the movie. Yes, for some unbelievably f***ing dumb reason, it turns out that the character we've been seeing all through the film is the writer of the movie, Mr. Barney Sarecki, who inexplicably decided to put himself in the movie and break the fourth wall in a staggeringly inept attempt at satire. What do you expect me to say? 
that you shouldn't see 1943's The Ape Man? No way am I doing that! You should show this thing to your families, your friends, your bank managers, your clandestine lovers, everyone. It's so bad. It's howlingly bad, completely atrocious, and gloriously so. Honestly, you think you love Bela Lugosi now? Wait till you've seen him looking like Teen Wolf, waddling along the street like his incontinence has finally gotten the better of him, acting his little socks off, and having a fight to death with a man in a gorilla suit who looks less like a gorilla than Bela does. You'll be so in love with him by the end of this film that you'll want to build a time machine and drag him into bed, ape makeup and all. Well, let's stick with the man himself, shall we, for the radio adventure this week. This is a wonderfully scary episode of Mystery House, in which Baylor starred with his universal horror compadre and fellow Dracula, Mr. John Carradine. This is a pretty nerve-shredding little horror story with a particularly dreadful name, so basically like many of the universal horror movies. This is The Thirsty Death, then. <laughs> from Mystery House, starring the one and only Mr. Bela Lugosi. See you afterwards. This is Bela Lugosi, welcoming you to Mystery House. Mystery House, starring Bela Lugosi. Mystery House, where live again the stories of the greatest mystery theater the world has ever known, the Grand Guignol of Paris. Mystery House, where tonight the distinguished actor John Carradine joins Bela Lugosi in presenting The Thirsty Death. Uh, good evening, folks. This is Ken Carpenter. If I sound a little nervous, it's not really my fault. I'm usually a pretty steady guy, calm as anyone, but, well, this is asking too much. Bela Lugosi alone is enough to scare you. John Carradine isn't exactly soothing to your nerves, but... Put them together in a story set in darkest Africa with mad dogs howling in the background and, whew, well, find out for yourself. And now, the curtain rises on The Thirsty Death, starring Bela Lugosi and his guest at Mystery House, John Carradine. You hear those native drums? You know what they're saying? Eve Plazanda does. That is why her heart is pounding to the mounting cadence of those ceaseless drums. That's why she's hurrying faster, faster, hurrying through the North African forest in the oppressive heat of this humid afternoon. And that is why Malad, her native houseboy, follows unwillingly, his eyes rolling fearfully in the wide sockets. Malad, faster! Walk faster! Jesus, please! Better we go by! Don't talk such nonsense! What? Misses! Thirsty death walks. All around us is thirsty death. You hear, Mrs. Do you hear? Stop gibbering like a frightened child. Anyway, we've gone too far to turn back now. We're almost halfway to the village. No, but a week, Obak. But a week. Oh, oh, Obak. Mallard. Mallard, don't leave me here alone. Mallard. Mallard. Somewhere near here, but what happened? I was on my way to the village when Mallard, my my houseboy, became frightened and ran away. There was a mad dog somewhere near. Well, 
So I have something to thank the epidemic for, after all. <sighs> Who would have thought back in Paris that we should meet again like this? Oh, Renee, please. Yes, forgive me. I was so taken away at seeing you. But sit down. Let me pour you some water. Oh, thank you. Here, drink. <laughs> Not fast, you can make yourself ill. More, please. Well, it'll more be all right, I suppose. I, I never knew before what I'm supposed to mean. Imagine those poor devils out there, hundreds of them who have hydrophobia. Whatever induced you to set foot outside your door? Oh, it, it was foolhardy. I mean, I know that my husband had to leave for the coast to be gone at least a week. And the prospect of being shut in all alone, except for my terrified houseboy. Yes, the natives are in a dreadful panic. My own houseboy, Gildas, ran off and deserted me yesterday. But you say you were on your way to the village. Well, perhaps you know the Chabours. I was going to stay with them until Francois, my husband, returned. You, are you happy with him? Him? You mean my husband? Of course we're happy. Very happy. Then why, when I first learned who the new doctor and his wife were, did you send back word by Gildas that I would not be welcome in your home? Because... Because you were afraid that seeing me might rekindle our love? Wasn't that it? No. No, Renée. Because Francois is such a jealous husband. Middle-aged men with beautiful young wives usually are. I'm rested now. I must be on my way to the village. If I'm to make it by nightfall. But you can't go out there again. I must. Oh... Renee, you love me once. I love you still. Then go with me. Take me to the village. Very well. But you're still tired. Rest a bit longer, and then we'll stop. <sighs> Strange, isn't it, Renee? Strange and wonderful. And doesn't it prove something to you, Eve? When you sent me away back there in Paris, because your parents wished you to marry this Dr. Poisson, I chose the farthest, most inaccessible, most uncivilized spot I could think of. Yet here I am, too. Eve. With my husband. Does he know that you were once in love with another? With me? With another, yes. I'm not sure. Oh! Those dogs. You said one spine a tingling. Without having my gun, of course. Hydrophobia turned him into such a snarling, howling, frothing beast that they had to smother in between two mattresses. Oh, it's a ghastly disease. And yet there are fools, criminal fools, who refuse to obey the order that all dogs be killed. I didn't hesitate to kill all four of my pets. Eve, why do you suddenly look at me like that? Oh, nothing. There's a dog in your home, isn't there? Yes. What, that sheer folly. Francois refuses to do away with him. That's another reason why I couldn't bear to remain home. I was afraid. What manner of man is this husband of yours? He says he needs the dog for experiments. Please, Rene, we mustn't delay any longer. It, it gets dark so suddenly out here. Very well. I'll get my gun. Rene. What's the matter? Somebody's outside. Probably Gildas, that poor houseboy of mine, coming back at last. No, no, it... Eve, who was it you said you saw just through the windows? Why do you... My husband. Your husband? Well, what you said. He mustn't find me here, Renee. He's so insanely jealous, he'll think... He mustn't find me here. Wait, go upstairs. There's a bedroom. All right. Who's there? Oh, good evening. Good evening, monsieur. I'm Dr. Plaisant. Oh, new doctor. Well, won't you come in? Thank you. I am René Bramont. Yes, I've heard of you. I think that back in Paris we had a, a mutual friend. You must be mistaken, my dear doctor. I am from Marseille. So? You are an obliging host. Your health, Dr. Plaisant. And yours, Monsieur Bramont. Hmm, splendid liqueur. I must say... A comfortable place you have here. Thank you, Doctor. This, I presume, is your living room. 
It's a very small place. <laughs> Just the kind of place that would appeal to my wife. We're thinking of building next year, and if you don't mind, I like to take a look at the bedroom. No. Uh, that is, I, I'd rather you didn't. Oh. The bedroom is uh, occupied, perhaps? Of course not. I, I'm here all alone. Then? Well, doctor, I might as well confess. Yes? Gildas, my houseboy, deserted me yesterday. Well, the bedroom is in a frightful mess. I must ask you to wait until some other time to see it. Hmm. As you wish. And now, Doctor, at the risk of seeming a rude host, I must remind you that it will soon be dark. You... you think I should be on my way? <laughs> After all, Dr. Passant, you of all people should be aware of the menace that lurks in the forest. There's still mad dogs loose and after dark. Oh, yes. Those mad dogs. And me, completely out of serum. Out of serum? Good heavens! Can't you get some more? The whole district has run out. I intended leaving for the coast today to get a supply, but... Yes? But something very significant came to my attention. So I sent someone else. Doctor, it's such a long trip. Why? This means that for at least a week, every case of hydrophobia in this district must necessarily be fatal. Yes, monsieur. In what ghastly cases we had. Death so horrible that even I, who have seen so much of death, was and utterly revolted. And yet you are so rash as to keep a dog in your own house. What's that, monsieur? What's that? You know I have a dog? Then she told you. She? I, I, I don't know who you mean. Who told you? Gildas, my houseboy, Gildas. You know how these natives chatter. He heard it from your houseboy. A most unusual servant, that Gildas. First leaves your bedroom a frightful mess so that I can't see it. And now he tells you about a dog. Dr. Passant, you must do away with the dog. It's too dangerous. Why, just think if your wife... Your solicitude for my wife's safety touches me deeply, Monsieur Grimaud. Too bad she couldn't be along with me on this present. Yes, it is. Perhaps we shall all three be together quite soon. Goodbye, monsieur. Goodbye, doctor. Yeah. Eve, you can come down now. Oh, Renee. Oh, I was so frightened. I, I can hardly stand. You're pale as a ghost. Here, sit down. I thought he'd never go. When he asked to see the bedroom, I... Eve, he knew you were here. You think so? His very manner in asking to see the bedroom. And his reaction when I forgot myself and spoke of the dog. Yes, yes. I tried to tell myself otherwise, but I know it's true. Didn't he even speak of a mutual friend in Paris? He meant me. Of course. He knows we were once sweethearts. And now, the way things happen... Don't, Eve, don't. I can't bear to see you like this. What if he does know? You've done no wrong. God knows you've been a faithful wife. But he... I told you how jealous Francois is. He'll never believe the truth, never. What kind of a devil is he? That you should cower and cringe before him. Oh, you don't know what he's capable of. Then why don't you divorce him? You don't love him, you never have. He'd never consent to a divorce. He's told me so. Then leave him anyway. Eve, darling, come away with me. Come away to the other end of the earth. I'll make you happy. I swear I will. Everything we once hoped and dreamed together. Oh, Renee, don't, please. You're only making me feel worse. As long as I'm his wife, I 
I, I couldn't. Yes. I, I suppose I knew that. Look, night has closed in already. We've got... Eve, what's the matter? If I hadn't caught you then, you'd have fallen. Oh, it's, it's, it's just nerves. I'll be all right. We've got to start for the village at once, Renee. But you're in no condition to ever make it, Eve. Do you realize how far it is? Yes, but I... Those mad dogs prowling in the blackness of the forest? But I, I can't stay here. Why not? You can have the bedroom upstairs. I'll sleep down here on the couch. Do you think he'd ever believe that? Listen, I have an idea. Why didn't I think of it before? Some friends of mine, an elderly couple, have a place down by the river. I'll take you there at dawn. They'll say you were here, all, all, you were there all the time. You really think they will? Positive, and Eve. We were probably wrong about your husband knowing you were here. We just imagined things. Everything's going to turn out all right. trembling. What time is it? Well, as a matter of fact, we'd have had to get up soon anyway. It's just about dawn. Well, then if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go back downstairs with you. I I hate to be alone. Sure thing. I'll start writing fixing breakfast. I had a restless night, too. Uh, wouldn't be a bit surprised if I was going to have another bout of malaria. My head's spinning. And I ache all over. Sit down. I like the lamp. Yes, too. It's eerie black. Oh, here's a match. Oh, there. The light from the lamp makes me feel better already. <laughs> I can almost laugh at my horrible dream now. Was it about the dogs? Yes, about the little dog Nero that my husband refused to kill. I dreamed that, that right before my eyes, the dog changed into the shadowy figure of a man. No wonder you woke up screaming. But that was only the beginning of the dream. It, it seemed to me that I woke up there in the bedroom upstairs, and the shadowy figure was, was leaning over me. I was so paralyzed with fright I couldn't move. And then I heard this, this thing go out of my room and close the door. Then it seemed to me that I lay there in eternity, trying to scream but unable to utter a sound. Finally, I found my voice. Eve. Renee, you do look ill. I hadn't noticed before how... Eve, I had a strange dream, too. I also dreamed that a sh shadowy figure was moving about in here. No. Then I dreamed the figure went out and barred the doors and windows from the outside. Renee, look. The windows are barred. Quick, the door, test it. Well, we must still be dreaming. It can't be. It's true. The door is locked and barred from the outside. Whoever you are there, open the door. We've got to get out of here. We've got to get out of here. Well, I hope you're not frightened yet because this isn't anything. Wait till you hear Bela Lugosi and John Carradine in the second act of The Thirsty Death. And wait till you hear those howling dogs. We left Eve Plazant and Rene Bramon beating senselessly on the barred door. The barred door which keeps them prisoners there in the Subramon's lodge, remote in the North African forest. As we return to them now in the ghostly dawn, they are still hammering their fists on the door in a fit of panic, still shouting hopelessly for help. Stop it! Stop! Stop it, Eve! We're behaving like panicky children. We've got to be calm. We've got to think this thing through like rational human beings. Calm? Rational? Yes, yes, of course. 
We wake up and find the door and windows barred from the outside. Now, is that any reason to give way to terror? Shadowy figure, Rene. He must have had a purpose. A ghastly purpose. Nonsense. He only existed in your imagination. And I dare say you transplanted him to mine. For all we know, Gildas may have done this just as a joke. You don't really believe that, Rene. Certainly I do. Or if it wasn't Gildas, maybe it was some native with a twisted sense of humor. Oh, Rene, we've got to get out of here. Naturally. And it shouldn't be very difficult if we use our heads. Now, let's see. Why, of course. I have a hatchet over here in the drawer. Oh, Rene. Gone. Rene, he took it. Whoever locked us in took it. Now, now. No. I don't get hysterical no. again. I can always fire my revolver and maybe it might help that way. Oh, then hurry, hurry. See, the cartridge is over here in the other drawer. No. The cartridges, they're gone too. Yes, they're gone too. Rene, the door. Somebody's there. It's opening. Dr. Pazan. Ah, good morning, Monsieur Bimond. And Eve, my dear wife, aren't you happy to see your devoted husband again? You locked us in, didn't you? Yes, it was you. Stand where you are, monsieur. I shall feel impelled to use my gun. Dr. Pazan, what sort of comedy do you think you're playing? A romantic one, but only as a supporting player. I'm sure you'll be the first to admit that. Oh, no, 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 Francois. It isn't true what you're thinking. We can explain everything if you'll only give us a chance. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure it would be a most ingenious alibi. You blind, stupid, jealous fool. I demand that you let us out of here at once. Let you out? Oh, no. I couldn't do that. It would be criminal. Criminal? Decidedly, you are dangerous. What riddles are you speaking now? Not riddles. Facts. Oh, he's gone mad. Completely mad. No, my dear wife. I'm not mad. But unfortunately, it will soon be impossible to say the same about one of you. What? Which one? Me? Perhaps. And then again? Perhaps it is she. Who knows? What are you talking about? Tell us what you have to say and be done with it. Very well, Monsieur Vermont. Remember telling me that I ought to have killed my little dog. What about it? I have been forced to follow your advice, Monsieur. You see, the dog had become rabid. Oh. But what has that to do with us? Patience. Patience. What will interest you particularly is that last night, after I killed the poor dog, I filled my hypodermic needle with its saliva. With its saliva? Yes, its saliva, brimming with hydrophobia. And then I came back here, came back all the way through the forest, and came back with my hypodermic needle. What really you? You that I saw leaning over my bed. And then you injected the needle into me. You monster! You infected us both! No, no, not both. Just one of you. Don't you remember my saying? Uh... Oh, which one? Which one did you infect? It wasn't me. Or me, in the name of heaven, man. <laughs> very soon you'll find out. But very soon the one who is infected will begin to feel symptoms. You are quite unmistakable, I assure you. First, just a general feeling of sickness, steadily growing worse. When I'm the one, I woke up feeling ill. And what about me? I thought it was malaria. Next will come that awful crucifying thirst. And then the final stage, the transformation into a snarling, frothing, howling beast that will bite and tear and stand back, Ramon, or I shoot. Dr. Pazan, 
by all that is holy. I swear that we are innocent. Oh, yes, Francois, yes. Have you no mercy? I have only advice. There in the drawer, where you failed to find the hatchet, I left a knife. A knife? Oh, it's not sharp enough or strong enough to tear open the door or window bars. However, when the mad person attacks the healthy one, the knife will prove useful. <laughs> Goodbye. If we only knew. If we only knew which one of us it was. Not me. He wouldn't have done it to me. He wants me. He wouldn't destroy me. It's you, Rennie. He did it to you. You're just saying that, Eve. You know in your heart it isn't true. Suspicion has turned his love for you into inhuman hatred. You're the one he'd want to destroy, not me. It's you he's infected. You. Thus, just a general feeling of sickness, steadily growing worse. General feeling of sickness, steadily growing worse. What he said. What's that you're saying, Eve? Renee, there's no longer any doubt about it. It was me that he infected. No, no, no. It was me. Just as he said, the symptoms are unmistakable. Why should I lie to myself or you any longer? I'm the victim. You're sure, Renee? You're positive? Good to God that I weren't. General feeling of sickness. Next will come that awful crucifying thirst. That awful crucifying thirst. Renee! Where is the water? Empty! No! That devil! He must have poured out all the water. Poured out all the water. And I'm so thirsty. So horribly, terribly thirsty. You are? Eve, you are? Then you must be the one. Water. Why did you take me water? I can have water. Then, the final stage. The transformation of the starving, frothing, howling beast. Why do you stand there looking at me, Renee? Water! I've got to have water! There's nothing I can do, Eve. Nothing! You've got to do something! There in the drawer where you failed to find the hatchet, I left a knife. When the mad person attacks the healthy one, the knife will prove useful. Renee! What are you doing with that drawer? Why, I... Put down that knife, Renee! Put it away. Put it away, you hear? Eve, stay away from me. I warn you. Don't me. come a step closer. If you do, I'll knife. have to use this knife. We're locked in here together, Eve, and there's nothing I can do but use this knife. Help! Help! Where is she? I think she is. The home was Monsieur Bremont, where you took her. Monsieur Bremont? No, no, doctor. Molly not take Mrs. anywhere. Molly gets scared of dogs. Run away and leave Mrs. all alone in forest. Come back now to say very sorry. Don't lie to me. You took her to Monsieur Bremont yesterday. Yes, sir, you had probably taken her many times before. No, no. Tell me, Ballard, oh. how much did she pay you for keeping her secret? Secret? What secret you talk about? Don't taunt me about You lied, devil. Oh? It won't do any good. 
I found her with Monsieur Bremont. Who this Monsieur Bremont? Marlet, not know. If no. you say that once more, I'll flood you. Huh? The game is up. I caught her with her lover and... Marlon, not know what you talk. Yesterday, Mrs. Say go without the village. On way, dog come. Marlon, run. Leave Mrs. behind. Now, come back to say very sorry. A very uh, clever story, uh, Marlon. Yeah. And who knows? Yeah. I might have been fool enough to believe it, if not for death. Oh, you get letter. Yes, a letter. Last night, while visiting Monsieur Vermont Lodge... I found it in a drawer hidden under a box of cartridges. It's in her own handwriting. Doctor, what let her say? I couldn't bear to read what my wife wrote to her lover. I haven't read it. But I will now. I'll read it now. Mrs. Very Good to Marley. Very Good to Marley. Doctor, what is it? Why you... Renee. Everything that once was between us is forgotten and must forever remain that way. Please, I beg you, never come to see me. And if ever we chance to meet, remember I am Madame Plazan and not the girl who... Oh, dear God. What have I done? Doctor, where you go? Quick, but it's come. Maybe that is yet time. Let me out, for God's sake. Let me out of here. Yes, yes. Quick, Marit. Help me get the door open. Missus. Death. How did you expect to find her? So you killed her. Yes. I killed her. I was only your instrument. You gave her that monstrous disease. Eve. Eve. Look at her now. Your wife. Your beautiful young wife. You and your hypodermic needle. You made her into a frothing, howling, biting... Listen to me. It's true that the blood is on my soul. She was not a victim of hydrophobia. What? All that about that hypodermic needle. I, I made it up. Neither you nor, nor my wife was touched. And that was Bela Lugosi in The Thirsty Death. Love you, Bela. Okay, let's take a trip back to who the hell is that Hollywood legend to see just who the hell it was in the hot seat. Well, I know it's my turn, but I hesitate to say because I've been so wrong all night. Is it Vincent Price? Yes. <laughs> yes, of course, it was the unmistakable voice of Vincent Price. Fabulous. If you didn't get that, then turn in your card and hang that head in shame. Until next week when you get another go. Okay, then that's all we have time for this week. There's more Bela Lugosi in this week's bonus edition coming to co-producers and patrons in a day or so. If you want access to that, along with over 70 other bonus editions of the show, as well as an invitation to this weekend's film club, where we're watching Topper and Harvey, then go on over to www.patreon.com slash attaboysecret and sign up. Only takes a sec. 
or you can click the link in the show notes, or you can listen on to the end of this show. Thank you for joining Baylor Lugosi, John Loder, and myself for today's show. I'll be back with you next week. So until then, take wondrously fine care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.